All right, Luke chapter uh, 1, and we're going to read the, uh, the song of Zacharias. So we'll start here at um, verse 57, just to get some context. Now Elizabeth's full time came and she, that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins grew heard sorry, how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. And they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he should have him called. And he asked for a writing table and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. And his mouth was open immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke and praised God. And fear came on all that dwelt round about them, and all these sayings were noised about abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And now our text. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the desert till the day of his showing unto Israel so far. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and we thank you for um, your word. We thank you that we have this song uh, recorded in scripture to, uh, to be encouraged by it, to be strengthened by it, to see more of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that indeed we would walk away this morning marveling again at who you are, your greatness, your majesty, your sovereignty, um, your promises, and the fulfillment of them. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the things we ask during Christmas, and maybe not so much for those of us who um, are part of a church, but especially unbelievers, would be the question, why Jesus? Why do we need this Jesus? And um, as we look at the Christmas message, I want to just do something different. I want to actually explain the question, why Jesus, from the perspective of John the Baptist, and pecu- peculiarly how he would set the stage for Jesus Christ, and it would be his father's 
prophecy, as it's called in the text, right? It says in verse 67 that he prophesied um, that we will see more of the answer to the question of why Jesus. You have to remember, of course, um, they were elderly people, John's parents, and they were past childbearing age, and yet God miraculously intervened and brought John the Baptist about to show the greatness of not only the birth of John the Baptist, but that this peculiar child would be the herald, the Elijah that would come as prophesied in Micah, that would herald the way of the Lord. This song in church history has been called the Benedictus, which is a Latin term which means simply the blessing or blessed. And that's exactly because that's how it begins, right? Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God. And that's why it's called the Benedictus. If you notice as we were reading the Benedictus, you'd notice that the song is kind of divided into two major parts. Verses 68 to 75 are looking backwards. They're looking at what God has done. And then verses 76 to 79 um, is looking ahead. But thou, child, shall. And so there's kind of a division in this song. The history and the moving forward. Now, the theologian Schweitzer Uh, he noticed that the entire song is called or is in the shape of a literary chiasm. Now, you should be able to see this chiasm here on the screen, and this chiasm really shows how the entire thing is uh, put together, and it centers on, as you can see, our fathers. So it moves all the way down to a central point in verses 72 and 73. So what I want to do this morning is look at each point of the chiasm from both of its angles and work our way to the middle. So first of all, the central point visited, or not the central, the the outward points from 67 and 78 visited. We see that um, where it talks, or verse 68, where it talks about the Lord hath visited his people. And in verse 78, it says the same thing. Through the tender mercy, and at the end, where the day spring on a high hath visited us. Now, visitation can be either a good thing or a bad thing. If you get visited by a friend, you're like, well, that's a good thing. But if you get visited by the CRA, that's not such a good thing. And so visitations can be either way. A doctor's visit can be good news or it can be bad news, right? The results came back great or not so great. In the same way, we can look at God's visitation to this earth as either bringing judgment Or salvation, two sides, two poles. For any Jew, the greatest visitation in their history, no doubt, would have been God's visitation upon them when they were in slavery in Egypt and where he delivered them. The horrors of slavery, just imagine the whippings, the the brutal murders, the hopelessness, the despair, the bondage, the children ripped from mothers, um, mothers as they were uh, feeding them. This was what was happening. And so in Exodus 3, verse 16, when Israel is moaning and crying out, it says there that God appeared to them, Moses and says, Go, gather the elders and the, of Israel together and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you. And have seen that which was done to you in Egypt. And so that is the great visitation that Israel remembers. And Zacharias picks up on that theme of visitation 
And he talks here about a new visitation in this coming child, this coming Christ that his son would herald. And this visitation undoubtedly is a second exodus. And that is why John starts baptizing and bringing people through the river and calling them to repentance. He's, everything here is just thick and loaded with the sense of a new exodus. Notice in verse 68, he calls it a redemption. And what's a redemption? It's freeing from bondage. That's exactly the slavery theme. And in verse 78, he calls it the tender mercy. Because it is undoubtedly a tender mercy when God takes people in bondage and delivers them out. And in the same way, our Christ delivering us from sin is a tender mercy. And notice as well, Zacharias says in verse 78, is the day spring from on high has visited us. That's where salvation comes from. Don't look across. The Israelites couldn't look at their fellow slaves and say, surely this man will save us. They were all in the same predicament. We're all in the same predicament. And we're tempted to look to one another. Oh, the pride of people to look across or look at themselves. But no, day spring comes from on high. That's where salvation is rooted. We have to be rescued. That brings us to the second point in the chiasm B, the people. Noticing the, notice the narrowing in. Uh, the question might be, well, who does he save? Who does God deliver? And notice it's peculiar. It's a, a specific people, his people. That's who he saves. Who are his people? If you'd ask anyone on the street, who are the people of God? A lot of people will say, well, Israel, the Jews, they are the people of God. And we, we get this question in the Bible as well. It gets answered where it talks about in um, Deuteronomy 32, God does talk about his people this way. Deuteronomy 32, it says, Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father, and he will show thee thy elders, and they will tell thee. And so he says, remember, this is to the Jews, he says, remember, and ask your dad, ask your fathers the question, where did we come from? And then in verses 8 and 9, it says this. When the Most High, El Elyon, the High God, divided the nations, their inheritance. And so he's dividing up the 70 nations. When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. And then it says this. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. And so all of the other nations would be under the different domain, but God would stake his claim on Israel. He will say, that's my inheritance. And the other, B'nai Elohim, the other sons of God, they, they don't get any touching of Israel. And so the Jews belong to God. And it actually says in Acts 14, with respect to God leaving the other nations, it, it says, in times past, God suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. And so when you see his people, it's almost distinguished from the rest of the people who would walk in the vanity of their own ways. And remember what Jesus says to the woman at the well, because remember, she She's a Samaritan. And Jesus says, salvation is of the Jews. So unless you're a Jew, 
Why are we here? Why care? Really what hope is there for us? If we're not Jews, why celebrate Christmas? You ever thought about that? You might have the answer. I hope you have the answer. It's because God promised that through this descendant of Abraham, the Christ child, the Mashiach, the Messiah, by bringing him into the world, that the understanding of his people would be expanded. It would be broadened out. It would reach its ultimate goal. In the Old Testament, it already talks about that, and Paul picks up this concept of my people, quoting from Hosea in Romans 9. Turn with me there, please. It would probably be best to see it in context. Romans 9. And the question here is, what about the Israelites? And Paul goes through the deep doctrine of election, but then look peculiarly here at verse 23, when it says, and that he, God, might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath afore prepared unto glory, talking about God's election. And then it says this, even us whom he hath called, not of Jews only, but also of Gentiles. Gentiles are the nations, the ethne, the the goyim, those who are outside of what would be called the pale of God's people. And then it says this, and he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. And it will go on and explain more. But the point here is that the people of God are going to include the Gentiles who come into God's covenant heritage. And that's you and me. This this new exodus, this deliverance calls all of us, people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, that they can be saved in this one and same Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says later in the next chapter, he says, there is no difference unto Jew or Greek. And take this to the bank. This is the hope of Christmas. The same Lord over all is rich unto all who call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's for all of us. Have you done that? Have you called upon him? You might be 70, 80 years old. You might be 20 years old, 10 years old. But have you called upon Jesus? Are you part of his people? It's Christmas for you. That leads us to the next point, C, salvation. Have you ever thought about the fact that we needed to be saved from Something more than a physical bondage, but a spiritual bondage. We are mortally wounded to something. We are sinners. We might be healthy today, but one day you will die. So what what caused this death? And you know, these are the things we learn in Sunday school. But what is the venom that poisoned our souls? What would you answer if somebody asked that? Why why do people die? Why is there death in this world? Notice in verses 69 and 70, you'll see a difference. 
I'll open my Bible there again. 69, if you notice what it says, it says, and he's raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant. But in verse um, 77, it says, to give the knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. And so this whole idea of salvation is linked to sin in the other part of the chiasm as you draw those two together. It is a shift, and Zechariah realizes that. Paul picks again, picks his theme up of salvation and sin up when he says the sting of death is sin. Sin. One was enough to cast this world into the curse and to bring sin on all of us. And if you doubt this morning that you're a sinner, some people are doubting that. The doctrine of original sin is under attack. People think, well, like Pelagius did, I'm not that bad and um, surely our children are not born sinners. The Bible says otherwise. Paul says this. He says the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is what? The law. The law. That's where it gets its it's muster because if you test your life against God's holy law, you will find out that, yes, you are a sinner. Have you read the Ten Commandments lately? I know when we did door-to-door evangelism, we would always approach people with the holy law of God because the strength of sin would be seen in the law as people are shown lawbreakers. Do you worship God with singular love? Do you have any idols in your hearts? Sports, sex, money, status, autonomy. Were you serving the idol of self this week? When you got mad at your boss because you had to work overtime? Did you have boiling road rage when the guy cut you off for no reason? Did your spouse grind your gears this week and you got angry at her were you mad at somebody around you because they didn't do what you wanted them to do when you wanted it at your time and they did something else they didn't put you first and you were offended we're idolaters aren't we do you honor your parents as you ought to honor them do you steal I remember this question often gets asked, and people say, oh, no, I'm not a thief. You ever steal an office pen? Your co-worker's job, potentially? What about this one? Your boss's time. He pays you to work. Instead, you're on your phone the whole time. What about covetousness? Maybe you coveted your neighbor's ability to buy lots of presents that you couldn't buy. Maybe you covet their picture-perfect family. Maybe you covet their house or their job. You wish you had their job. Not only do you wish that, you start to become envious of that job. What about the insatiable appetite to have new clothes? Your wardrobe is full, but you need to have more. More, more, more. Were you impatient this week at the grocery store with the slow teller? You couldn't believe it was taking forever, and you had somewhere to go. Do you have a, an attitude of entitlement? Perhaps you have pride as you were watching that happen, and you would surely say, 
Man, this person doesn't know how to count money. I wouldn't have counted money like that. My system is so much better. You see, God's holy law is like a white shirt you put on someone that is bleeding. And the stains come through. And they show themselves. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's what's underneath our hearts. And they stain the holy law of God. And the venom shows we are bleeding to death because of sin. So who can eliminate their sins? How do you stop the bleeding? How do you stop tarnishing this beautiful law of God whose power is strong enough? It's interesting. Whose might? And if you look at the question of might and strength, who can break the curse of sin is an idea here of who has that strength, who has that power to do that. And the answer is in our text, because notice what it says in the verse when it says he has raised up the horn of salvation. That's a kind of a strange way of talking about salvation, a horn of salvation, isn't it? Well, why would they talk about a horn of salvation? What was a horn known for? It was on animals, and it was a show of might, right? The ram's horn, the horn of a bull. Right? The bigger the horn, the more powerful the beast, especially the ox's horn. And some of these were massive. Maybe you've seen the Texas longhorn. You've seen moose, which is a different kind of horn that we have here in North America. You don't want to run into these things. Um, but the question is, is there an instrument like a horn strong enough to break the power of sin? Verse 69, talking about this horn of salvation, connects it with what? The house of David. It's interesting. David was Israel's mighty warrior king, wasn't he? And God promised that it would be a descendant of David who would one day save us, his mighty deliverance. And guess what? There's only one spot in the Old Testament where the phrase horn of salvation gets used. And it's in a psalm. That also is quoted in uh, Samuel. It's used twice, but it's the same song. And it says this, The God of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my savior. Thou savest me from violence. And so Zechariah is picking up that phrase that applies to who in the Old Testament? To God. And he applies it to the Messiah that would come. And he's linking the two. It would be God who is the horn of salvation. And it is Christ who is God who is our deliverer. And so in everything, Zechariah is calling us in this song to look upward to God to save sinners. Jesus was no mere man. He wasn't just a child born in a stable. He had a pre-existent state from all eternity. He is the mighty horn. If you come to grips with that, oh, how we have to let the the deity of Christ inform our understanding of who this Jesus is. If you bow down to worship this mighty warrior king, which brings us to D, the prophet. Prophet. Prophets of old, verse 70 and 76 The promise of a savior was prophesied throughout the history of Israel. You see, Jesus was not a plan B for God. And that's the whole point of prophecy. He was predicted. It was stated he would come. 
Christmas is not an afterthought. It's not God saying, well, if things really go bad, then I'll send my son in case we can't fix the problem ourselves. And so when John the Baptist comes, he is the last prophet, the final herald before the great Savior would come. It's interesting because in him, the canon of the Old Testament would reach its end and we will run into the the time of the new covenant. But think about prophecies for a second because prophets fail when what? When what they predicted doesn't come to pass. And what do you have to do in the Old Testament when you have a false prophet? You stone them. And you would measure that on their words. And so the prophetic word of Scripture that all these various prophets, the plural, are speaking, they're heralding, are tested on their words. And how few people nowadays are good for their word. Who can say he's been good for his word for maybe... More than a month. Test yourself. You've never broken a word for a month. What about years? What about decades? We're all fallen. None of us can say we've kept our word for very long. But God keeps his word through generations. It's amazing. Through generations. And so he's picking up generations past and bringing them for, forward. You know, you think of where sadly in our society we see the word of man broken most vividly and the terror and the destruction it brings. It's in an institution, a covenant institution. Which one? Marriage. People say, well, I take thee till death do us part not happening is it it's more like if you don't fit my protocol for what I want you to be then I will part from you people aren't good for their word but God is God always keeps his word now why is this so important it's because the shift has taken place God fulfills his prophecy and the heralders will say one will come And now the prophetic word takes a turn the door as it were opens to a new era in which you and I are not called to be prophets as some were in the Old Testament. We take the prophetic word and we now herald not one shall come, but one has come. And now we are proclaimers. We announce the word of God to neighbors and friends and we use the prophetic word to show that. He has come. That brings us to E. E. Verses 71 and 74. Christ saves us from our enemies. Now for Israel, what was their main enemy in those days? Who would it be? Rome. Rome, right? Now we might think, okay, who are our enemies? If we're thinking along the same lines, we might think of terrorism. We might think of Russia right now. Maybe you're thinking a little closer to home and you think of our own government, who seems to be undermining, seems to be enemy of the people of God. And in very many ways, that's true. But that's not the real enemy. That's not the ultimate enemy, is it? Who was responsible for bringing the lie into the world? Satan. He brought that mortal wound of sin through deception. He's called the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. Jesus calls him that. And in Revelation 12, it talks about the great dragon who was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. Satan means accuser, adversary. 
which deceiveth the whole world. So the real enemy of our souls is the devil. Satan hates you. He hates God. And he wants to destroy you. And so if you are ensnared by him and you have no desire to go anywhere else, it's actually a kingdom of hatred and destruction. He has no interest in you. And you can't defeat this enemy. He's mightier than Rome. His influence is behind wicked men like Hitler and Pol Pot and Stalin. He's spiritual, so you can't build a weapon to destroy him. He laughs at you. And interesting, I was reading Gurnall this morning. He says he wakes up the sinner and feeds him his poison. And he brings him to bed with the same poison such that the sinner has no interest in changing. He plays with those who are under his domain and toys with them and holds them captive, as it says in Timothy, who are held captive by him at his will. And so of Christ's coming, Hebrews says, this is another Christmas passage, we don't think of this, for as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself, Likewise, took part of the same, that is, took on flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him that has the power of death, even the devil. And so Christmas anticipates the cross. And both of those are the instrument by which God would crush his enemies. In death, the enemy is destroyed. Now, at times it might seem like the devil is winning. Doesn't it seem that way at times? His vile clutches seem to be so upon lost loved ones. And it seems like they're just tenaciously holding them. And nothing can be done. We have to remember that Christ's victory will bring in everyone whom the Father has given to him. They will hear his voice. And they will come to him. And no one will be able to take them out of the Father's hands. And so herald the gospel to your friends, to your neighbors, to your unbelieving family members, and be certain of this, that all the chosen of God will come. Absolutely. And the fingers of the devil's hand and grip will be peeled away, and hearts will be resurrected, and they will turn to him. Take hope in that, and it is by the means of proclamation that God will do that. This brings us to F. The final point of our chiasm, verses 72 and 73. I'll read it out loud. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. This is the center of the chiasm. Why would this be the center of the chiasm? Why such a central point on this? I think it's because neither Abraham, neither Isaac, nor Jacob, nor any of us deserved this mercy. At the center of the chiasm is the free, rich, undeserved grace of God. God wasn't obligated to take Abraham. He wasn't obligated to save Jacob and to take this deceiver and make something out of him. Deliverance is not God's duty. It's a mercy. Oh, we think so highly of ourselves, don't we? But the reality is You didn't deserve any of it. Have you thought about where Abraham came from? You know, there's one spot in the Bible that we can guaranteedly know that Abraham wasn't such a righteous guy. 
It's hard to find. Joshua picks it up. Joshua 24, verses 2 to 5. Listen to this. At the end of having the promised land and, and conquering their enemies, Joshua says to all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Abraham was an idol worshiper. It's all he knew. Serving other gods. And I took God, it says here, I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. And I gave unto Isaac Jacob and Esau. Which is really interesting because Jacob and Esau will be picked up in Romans 9 as a paradigm of God's sovereign election. And I gave unto Esau Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. I sent Moses also and Aaron. I plagued Egypt according to that which I did among them. And afterwards I brought you out. Central in the chiasm is the sovereign, beneficent grace of Almighty God. And central to that is the promise, the oath that it talks about, the oath which she swear unto her father Abraham. What is that oath? What is the central oath to the people of Israel, the people of God? God promises to Abraham that in blessing I will bless thee, and, I will multi- and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall what? Possess the gate of his enemies. The people of God will be victorious. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That's what we long for. That the nations, you and I, could be drawn into the people of God. Have you considered lately, or maybe for the first time, the free, covenant-rich hope and mercy of God's promises. Central, I think, to this text, central to Christmas, is God fulfilling his covenant mercy to undeserving sinners. This morning I was in the barn doing chores and one of my favorite songs came into my head as I was thinking about this. It's a Dutch song and I won't speak the Dutch here. I'll loosely translate it. He involves himself with us via Bethlehem. What a mercy. He didn't have to. And yet he stoops down. And in all these promises and finally at Bethlehem he involved himself with a broken rebellious people like you and I. What a mercy that is. This salvation is a one-way street. The provision only comes from on high. We don't bring our contributions to it. We receive it freely as a child would expectantly look up to daddy, 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 knowing he can't do anything. He can't even get himself into the car seat. And yet the little child just stretches out his arms. And the father takes him and places him in that secure seat. And that's what God does for us. You know, people are starting to erase Christ out of Christmas more than ever. They think it's too provocative to even say Christmas. I've got to 
card this week from a business and it said Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. And then there was one on there that said Happy Holidays and my stomach kind of turns within me and I'm like, why can't we say Christmas anymore? What's going on? You know, they say, well, it's politically incorrect. It's not sensitive. I don't think the people in Zachariah's day would be very amused with Happy Holidays. Life was tough. The oppression of the Romans was very real and painful. And even though you and I, we have health care, we can go to the hospital if we need to, we live in a democratic country, we still live in the same broken world that Zacharias was in, don't we? The same world, and we know this brokenness. You just read the news about what's happening in Africa, what's happening in the Ukraine, what's happening in North Korea, what's happening in China, what's happening virtually around the world, what's happening in our community, the drug overdoses, the deaths, the sickness, the misery. Happy holidays? No, Merry Christmas. Why? Because a Savior has come. A Deliverer has come from this brokenness. Some people are going to spend this Christmas, some in the hospital, Others in depression. Others alone. Reminiscing. Years gone by when they had family. And now it's just me. By myself. Some of you may have come this morning more fearful about life than you ever were before. Because of the challenges to your health. The challenges to your family. The challenges of society. And you didn't have that a couple of years ago. But now you do. And that's how you came this morning. Others of you came this morning out of duty. It's Sunday. I go to church. That's what I do. And so that's why you showed up. But not because you really hungered for the word of God or to hear about Jesus Christ. But others of you maybe came because you were convicted of sin this week. And you longed to, to be drawn closer to the Savior in holiness. And others of you came because you longed for Christ so much. Your heart is yearning and beating to hear more of the precious word of God and to fellowship with believers as we minister to one another. Have you considered this? However you came this morning, for whatever reason you came, with whatever concerns, worries, joys, sadness, it doesn't matter. The solution, the answer, the central hope that we all need is the same for everyone. It's the same message. It's the same deliverer. It's one Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is why we can minister to everyone. The same hope. Have you ever considered that Zacharias was right in this song to speak centrally of a covenant-keeping, merciful God? It's Christ who visited from on high. It was a Christ who took a people who were not his people and made them the people of the living God. It is a Christ who delivers and saves us from our bondage. It is a Christ who vindicates his prophetic word. It is a Christ who delivers us from the enemy that you and I had no chance against, the devil. It is a Christ in whom unworthy sinners are taken and pulled out from the mire. You know, I was thinking, to have a truly happy holidays, as people say, they need a Merry Christmas. They need to be joyful 
in Christ. Then it's a happy holiday, isn't it? And that's what we need to be telling the world. It's not the gift. It's not the festivities, the lights. It's the person. The person. Oh, to know him more. To have our souls ravished with the joy, the hope, the freedom, the delight of the person, Jesus Christ. You know how they say, take the whole world, but give me Jesus. That's what we long for, don't we? Hallelujah. Amen. We serve that Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for, for Jesus. We thank you for the hope he brings. We thank you for the person he is. We thank you that salvation came from on high. We thank you that we can talk about him to our friends, to our neighbors, and bring the prophetic word to bear in the most difficult and dark situations of life. We need to just talk about you, Lord. And I pray that you would convict us of that, and you would bring each one of us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.